Welcome to the Dream for Others podcast. I'm Naomi Arnold, an award-winning business and life passion coach, writer, speaker, and human rights activist. This show features inspiring conversations with those who use their platform, passions, and uniqueness to make a difference in the world. If you are big-hearted, open-minded, a lifelong learner, and are on a mission to help create a better world, this is the podcast for you. Now let's get started and dream for others. Today I am excited to have Dr. Anita Heiss on the Dream for Others podcast. Anita is a member of the Wiradjuri Nation of Central New South Wales and is one of Australia's most prolific and well-known authors of Aboriginal literature. She is the author of non-fiction, historical fiction, commercial women's fiction, poetry, social commentary, and travel articles. She is a regular guest at writers' festivals and travels internationally, performing her work and lecturing on Indigenous literature. She is a lifetime ambassador of the Indigenous Literacy Foundation, an advocate for the National Centre of Indigenous Excellence, and an ambassador of the Werriwa Aboriginal College. She currently divides her time between writing, public speaking, emceeing, managing the Epic Good Foundation, and being a creative disruptor. Anita was the finalist in the 2012 Human Rights Awards and the 2013 Australian of the Year Awards, and is a board member of the State Library of Queensland. She lives in Brisbane, Australia. I started reading Anita's books recently, beginning with Am I Black Enough For You and Cherry Blossoms and Barbed Wire, loving them both so much that I've since asked my local library to source her other titles for me so I can read them also. I can't wait to chat with Anita today about how she uses her talents, passions and platform to contribute to advancing social change. Hello, Dr. Anita Heiss. Thank you for joining me on the Dream for Others podcast. Good morning and thanks for having me. I'm excited. I love calling people doctor. <laughs> well, I get on a plane and someone says, welcome back, doctor. I say, well, if you're looking for a medical doctor, you need to look elsewhere. Yes, <laughs> don't look in this direction. I might panic. <laughs> Philosophy. Hmm. You always have to make it clear. Yes, exactly. Well, I have lots of questions and not much time, so I'm going to launch straight in. But I thought for those who aren't as familiar with you and your work as me, would you mind just introducing us a bit to what you do and how you came to be doing it? Of course. So um, I actually started writing back in 1992, which some of your listeners may only have been very young then, um, and I was writing comic scripts for Streetwise Comics, and I wasn't very, very good at that because in a comic, an educational comic, there's one message per page. And um, I started, so I tried very hard, but I'm rather verbose with my writing. So I um, did that for two years, but while I was doing that, I started writing, doing some journalism and writing columns and so forth where I could use a bit more flair and use um, some, you know, a a larger word count. So in 1994, I quit that job at Streetwise to write a book. I didn't know that I would write more than one book. I didn't know that I'd be talking to you today, having published almost 20, I think it is. But I wrote a book called Sacred Cows. And really, it was a reflection uh, of my time at university, uh, a reaction to my time at university, what all the books on the shelf there were written by non-Aboriginal people. And some of those people had not even been to Australia. So 
I got all the shelf books I got off the shelf about anything to do with Aboriginal people and Aboriginal Australian history that involved Aboriginal society. Um, failed to use Aboriginal voices. So I thought I would write a book about Australian society, looking at Australian sacred cows like Skippy and Vegemite and the Backyard Barbecue in a satirical way just to make the point that uh, we are bicultural people, but even me writing that kind of book had to engage with, with Australians to make that an authentic piece. So that was the springboard for me into writing. I didn't know I'd write another book, but I was then invited by Scholastic Australia to... Uh, write a novel, a historical novel called Who Am I, The Diary of Mary Talents about the stolen generation. So I wrote that around the same time that I was doing my PhD on Aboriginal literature and publishing and, and then they rest, as they say, is history. You seem to have, even though you write in a whole heap of different contexts, there seems to be like an underlying theme through a lot of it where you are trying to raise consciousness on something or play some part in creating I guess change or awareness oh what I want to do I want to do many that's absolutely right the way you've summed that up is right I want to do a few things and I started writing because I wanted to write Aboriginal stories, Aboriginal voices, Aboriginal women in particular, into the Australian literary landscape in a, in a way that we had not been written before. So, for instance, um, I wrote the first commercial women's novels uh, with Aboriginal, you know, characters and so forth, and and that was writing us into a space where we were you know, women with careers and women who were educated and women who had families and women who wanted relationships and had friendships just like other Australian women. So breaking down those stereotypes um, for a start um, is what I wanted to do, but also within those stories. So they can be stories set in Sydney and Melbourne and Canberra and Brisbane and so forth, but weaving through those stories uh, of relationships and friendships themes of black deaths in custody, themes of human rights like the NT intervention, looking at Indigenous intellectual property in the arts and so forth and using my characters to have uh, dialogue and have storylines that are real for myself and the women in my, in my world. Uh, I was the first person in my family to graduate, go to university and graduate from university and also the first person, Aboriginal person, uh, to graduate with a PhD from the University of Western Sydney. So I feel a huge sense of responsibility to use the platform that I now have through education and the, the privilege that comes with having a platform to try and make changes in a way, in, in, in some way, through the arts. My mother was born on an Aboriginal mission in Cowra. My grandmother was one of the stolen generations and was in service. Um, and so... I feel that we still have a long way to go um, in terms of change in this country and that writing and using, whether it's commercial women's fiction or memoir or children's books, is one way of making this nation think and, and making them think about what their role is in terms of making social change as well. Mm, I love that. I When I was reading Barbed Wire and Cherry Blossoms, one of your novels, I just loved seeing how even though something is fiction and, and a novel that you were kind of raising my consciousness there of what it was like to be an Aboriginal person living in Cowra with, you know, on a mission with less rights than those who were in the prisoners of war camp nearby, for example. 
Well, the, the barbed, thank you. The bar, barbed wire and cherry blossoms is obviously a story that's very close to me mm. because of family history there. Um, and it's interesting because I had the idea for that novel when I was in Hawaii at um, Pearl Harbor. And I, it made me think about the way in which um, history had been documented in our country. And obviously history is often documented by uh, the coloniser as opposed to the colonised. And I was thinking about Cowra and, and what I knew about the breakout and none of it had actually talked about um, anything that had been written or, or uh, documented around the Cowra breakout and so forth. And, and largely World War Two had talked about Aboriginal involvement in the war for a start. So there were Wiradjuri men from Cowra, from the town of Cowra, who were in World War One, World War Two, but also the fact that, you know, 4.5 or 4.6 miles in a direct line from that POW camp was another camp of Aboriginal people where my mother was living at the time of the breakout, who, as you mentioned, had lived under the Act of Protection. There was an assimilation policy at the time. And Aboriginal people lived with fewer rights less access to um, nutritional food, less access to uh, medical supplies and so forth than um, Japanese POWs. And don't get me wrong, we, we, we provided the care that we should have provided to prisoners of war under the Geneva Convention, and, and that's a good mm-hmm. thing. But what most people don't know is that, you know, they know that story, but they don't know that this other story. And um, for me it was important to say, well, Australian readers need to understand the complete story around that town at that time and it's a town that quite um, proudly recognises its um, relationship and the ongoing reconciliation that it has with Japan that doesn't necessarily have with its local Indigenous people. So um, that novel, again, (laughs) used as a you know, the build-up to a love story to, to drive that story because I wanted people like yourself, Naomi, and women in book clubs and women who lie on the beach and, you know, on the coast and women who catch trains to work who want to read about um, relationships and strong female stories but may not pick up a book or may not have thought to pick up a book by an Aboriginal author before with Aboriginal themes but will buy a book and read a book and talk about a book that actually talks about the human condition and the frailties of relationships in families but also male and female relationships. And obviously in that novel we, we're looking at um, a young girl, Mary, who's a Wiradjuri girl and a Japanese POW, Hiroshi, thrown into a situation as war does, makes people do and say and behave in, in, in quite extraordinary ways, but also to make Australian readers understand the humanity behind caring for each other, particularly in a time of war, and that race, in, in, in the instance of love in particular, um, Love knows no boundaries, least of all race. Mm. Yeah, you can feel yourself really connecting with those characters and what they're going through and then it often triggers you to go research further afterwards about the realities. I really hope so. And and it's interesting because, you know, you write a book, you, the author's focus on the characters and the dialogue and wanting to um, have a rich story and, and, and a and a a store, a plot that will make readers want to keep reading, but you can't control the way a reader reads your work because we, I write through a lens and everybody reads through it their own particular lens. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I wrote Titters, which was set in Brisbane, 
you know, I had people read it as a love letter to Brisbane. I had, um, you know, people read it in different ways. There's five main characters. People engage with a different character. When I wrote Manhattan Dreaming, which was a much more fun novel to write, I had journalists say to me that they went, they then went and started researching all the artists that I mentioned in that novel, which was not my intention at the time of writing it. My intention was to say, oh, I want to showcase some artists and I want to use real, living, breathing, successful um, Indigenous artists across art forms. I had no idea that, that they may then be uh, become the subject of greater stories, which is, a, which is a bonus. Oh, that's great, isn't it? Yeah, and I think I heard or read somewhere as well that you do that deliberately now and you also like feature real places and and things like that too to help local communities or businesses well I think it is true I'm a method writer so I get into character and I you know, I, I source, I research, I find out where where would my character eat, where is, if I'm going to Wagga, where's the best steak and where's the best coffee in town and so forth. Um, and, and quite frankly, Naomi, it's easier than making up places. <laughs> yeah, I bet. And also, first, so for instance, Paris Dreaming, the, the, the main, one of the main characters is from Daniloquin, and I, I went to Daniloquin a couple of times and, and loved the town and, I, you know, found out it's the home of the, the, the world Ute muster. I mean, who would have known? But very strong reconciliation group there, great community radio. Or, and I just thought, you know, there's lots of people who will never go to Daniloquin, never know that this is a great town in, you know, country, New South Wales. And... Um, and also, but also, you know, character, one of the main characters was from um, Moree and it was sort of like, how do I put Moree on the map? How do I put, you know, Gamilaroi mob on the map? How do I put Danny on the map? And how do I, how do I place Aboriginal people in an international context where we currently exist, like at the Musée de Quibronle in Paris? And I try to weave it all together because also lots of, most Aboriginal people will not get to Paris, but I want them to know that our art is sits in an international context and framework, and we are recognised and appreciated and valued at that level as well, even though we may not be able to get there. So geography, I think, is very important. So the two key elements for my for my all my novels are setting and characters, and 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 they drive the story, the place, and and I want I would never write about a place that I haven't been to. When I run writers' bookshops, I say, like, don't write about a place you haven't been to if you can't describe the smells and the sounds and the people and so forth because your readers will know. They will know if you are not being authentic in the story. Yeah, they can pick up on it quite easily, hey? Yeah, absolutely. You're making me even more excited about reading your other titles now. I've already been on to my library. <laughs> so the interesting thing about um, you asking me these questions is it takes me back to a time when I like Manhattan Dreaming came out in 2010 I think so it's many years ago and many books ago so it's made me remember the joy of actually writing about things that matter to me that I think other Australian women should be concerned about but the the actual joy in the process of researching and so forth. Mm. And as somebody who obviously is really passionate about using your platform and your talents to be of use to others, I just find it incredibly inspiring to see how you're doing that through your writing, but also through your speaking as well, I know. And I, I think it helps 
open up people's minds too about the different ways that they can take some personal leadership or or do something themselves outside of what we've been taught, which is sometimes giving money, you know, and protests and, and things that are important, but there are other ways too, and you're showing that. Thank you. And you're right, there are there are lots of ways. I mean we all have we all in our own way have a capacity to make change. As you say, whether it's um, the power of protest, and there is power in being in a unified space, uh, in a united space with a unified voice, taking to the streets. I think there is, it does a lot for us to feel as individuals that we are not alone in a particular cause, whatever that cause is. Um, if we have the capacity to give, the, you know, the cost of a cup of coffee or more to a particular cause, then we can do that. If it is using your platform as a writer or so forth, it's it's that as well. Um, most recently I got to speak, I was um, fortunate to have a platform at the Business Chicks International Women's Day event in Melbourne and uh, next uh, alongside the amazing Gillian Triggs and um, Jules Allen. So I used that platform to talk about the women in history who have um, been role models for me and who I've tried to model myself on in terms of pressing for progress, which was the theme, as you would know, for International Women's Day this year. So I chose to talk about... Um, all the women in history that obviously they've passed. So there were women like Udra and New Knuckle who wrote the, the Charter for Aboriginal Rights um, back in 1972. So I talked about her and her role as an activist, an author, um, an illustrator and so forth, who over the course of her life penned 400 pieces of writing um, as, as a role model to me as a writer but also an activist. And that, and that charter is as relevant today as it was back I also talked about Barangaroo and interestingly I asked the women in the room to show a show of hands please for those who had heard of Barangaroo and you know maybe 50 hands went up and I asked those same women how many of them knew that, that Barangaroo was actually a woman because they all know about the precinct you know the funky new precinct with eateries and bars and a nice place to live down on the harbour in Sydney but very few people understand that that precinct is named after and a, a, a matriarch who was who demonstrated a sense of humanity at a time when Aboriginal people were treated with anything but humanity, when and actually women in, were treated in barbaric ways. So uh, I use that platform to to raise awareness about this woman who that precinct is named after. Because if your listeners go and Google Barangaroo, what they'll find is a list of um, entries about. The precinct, and I also talked about Aunty Ruby Lang for Guinnaby, who, back in the day, taught me about being your authentic self. Now you exist in in a space as I do, where women in recent years have talked about be your authentic self and and so forth. These aren't new concepts, you know. These women like Ujuru and Barangaroo and Aunty Ruby Lang for Guinnaby, they were pressing for progress. They were making change. They were being the, their authentic selves before there were hashtags and campaigns and so forth. So I hope, you know, just from my 25 minutes on that platform that some women walked out of that room thinking I need to learn more about these women um, or they they saw in the women that I talked about ways in which they could model themselves or some elements of their lives in terms of pressing for progress as well. Absolutely. And just what you've shared there just with me as one person, you've already inspired me to go and learn more about them too. 
oh, well, my work here is done. <laughs> so I'm sure yeah, you had power on the, mass, on the masses too. And I noticed in your TED Talk as well, you, you did an amazing job um, sharing some of these stories as well in terms of relating back to your books too, but you used a lot of humour as well, which it seemed the audience were loving. The TED Talk was possibly the most difficult um, public performance I've had to do because, you know, you have to do it all without notes. Mm. But um, it was one way for me to say we are the same as human beings and the more that we focus on what connects us as human beings, what makes us the same, particularly as women, and our desire to have companionship, uh, our friendship groups, the relationships we have with women, that's what makes us the same as women. You know, we, we all have periods, we, we have everyday experiences that does not alter regardless of geography or socioeconomics uh, and so forth, um, but remains the same just because we, we share a gender. And the more that we focus on what connects us in the, in the light of, of what makes us the same, then it becomes easier to talk about the things that, that are different and it becomes easier to celebrate difference. And so that was just, that TED Talk was really about sameness. And for me, I think that when we have a personal sense of peace in that space, then it leads to a greater sense of communal peace. Yes, yeah. And I I personally think as well that you really showed that in just the way that you showed up and and presented that TED talk in in what you shared but also the little bits that you were adding with humor and there appeared to be anyway a real connection with the audience and they were a good audience <laughs> we'll take them everywhere <laughs> yeah good. and then you're also writing memoirs as well and oh just about every genre you can think of you've you've been involved in you've done some kids books <laughs> been involved in kids books as well but I just finished reading Am I black enough for you? Which you break down some of the stereotypes there of what is it's, is associated with what it means to be Aboriginal. So anyone listening, please read that. It was great. There was also humour sprinkled through that as well. I had some laugh out loud moments while reading it in there. Felt like you were just talking to me directly. Oh, thank you. Well, I think one of the things that I learned from my Ruby Lang for Guinea also was that um, the need to be true to your voice and then she very conversational, very conversationally. And the reality is we, in terms of Aboriginal writing, a lot of our writing is much closer to the oral, to the way we speak um, than non-Indigenous text. So I want people to read it like it's being spoken. But with Am I Black Enough With You, can I just say that the, the the stereotypes I wanted to tackle there was that there's no there's no such thing as pan-Aboriginality. We are diverse peoples and we identify as such. And I want people to understand that and and that the bulk of the Indigenous population lives in urban areas. You know, 30% of Aboriginal people live in urban areas. The greater the greater Western Sydney has the largest concentration of Aboriginal people um, in Australia. And I think when we need to start bringing back what we or reconsidering what we see in the media because what we see in the media is all is often um, images of disadvantage, which are real. But we also need to be looking at um, the way in which we are kicking goals in our community. I don't just mean on the football field. So uh, you know, Emma Black enough for you was really saying let's 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 challenge some of those stereotypes that you see of us every day. We are not you know one voice. We are not 
one um, pan-Aboriginal Australia. We are diverse peoples. We live in urban centres. We are highly educated in some areas. We are running our own businesses and we are international in our works and our travel. So I was just trying to, you know, challenge the way people see us every day and say, if you if you see this person who is educated and articulate and lives in the city and, and, and doesn't fit into that box, are they black enough for you? Am I black enough for you? Because because you have been we, I have been created into, I've been created through a frame of someone else's lens. Yeah. And there was something in there, I kind of, you'll probably, or you, you will remember, but there was a light in there around when we, when people speak to white people, they don't say. Well, non-Indigenous people are asked about blood quantum. So yeah. I put it in the TED Talk. So I ask you, put your hand up if you are, to identify as Australian and, you know, 90-odd percent of people put their hands up. You know, if you go overseas, what you say, I'm Australian, put your hands up, leave your hands up if you have some other heritage, English, Irish, Japanese, Chinese, Malaysian, American, whatever. And a large percentage of people put their hands up because, um, you know, over 50% of Australians have um, parents um, or grandparents born overseas. And what's interesting is you never hear Australian, white Australians say, oh, yes, I'm half-caste Australian yeah. or I'm quarter-caste Australian because my parents were born in, in Greece. You do not hear that language that Westerners use for Indigenous peoples the world over. They have a completely different language and set of um, terminal phrases and terminology they use for Indigenous peoples that they don't use for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, white, we're socialised white people to think that white is the norm, aren't we? So we just we just assume that's absolutely. Yeah. But increasingly, like that that conversation, that shift needs to happen because I've been having that conversation that we've just talked about, you know, for a decade now, at least publicly for a decade, but obviously much longer um, privately. I was encouraged to, as a white person, who I was encouraged by women of colour in the US to investigate my heritage more. They were saying that a lot of white people don't even have a connection with their ancestry and their heritage. They just see themselves as white people and don't investigate any further than that. So I recently did a DNA test and it's just been fascinating looking back at all the different I guess things that make up me and trying to connect with that rather than what white people often do with appropriating from other cultures instead of connecting with their own. And I, I think, I think the, I, I think people can identify, be, search, not search whoever they want to be or not be. I think the issue with the obsession. Um, with Aboriginal identity by non-Aboriginal people is because they don't have they may not have their own sense of identity and not concerned, and that's fine, but they've, but then don't actually question or interrogate those who do have a strong sense of identity. And it goes back to that, to place as well, because I can sit around a dinner table and, and listen to non-Indigenous people, you know, move from one state to the other and all of a sudden become, you know, um, a South Australian or a Victorian or, you know, the UK and become, you know, and and. and completely transform their lives to that place and that's absolutely fine um but for aboriginal people regardless of where we move we are always from where we're from so you know i've moved to brisbane love it here 
have a real sense of connection here. But I'm not from here. I'm never going to be here, from here. I'm regardless of where I live. I'm from Central New South Wales, so I'm from Wiradjuri country. That's where my spirit will rest. And I think that I think the problem and, and the, some of the issues raised in Am I Black Enough for You around the and also around the Andrew Bolt case was he struggles so diff, so much with his own sense of or lack of identity he could not understand why uh, aboriginal people are so strong in identity and why why trying to um dilute through his prescription of what aboriginality was trying to dilute us and say us we can't possibly be black because you live in the city and you're not on social welfare and you're educated and you went to a catholic school and so forth um it, it was all about how he saw his sense of identity that he couldn't understand why we were strong in ours. And I think that's one of the issues in this country, that this country is struggling with a sense of identity, mm. holds to very white symbols uh, and male symbols, I will say, you know, the digger, the farmer, the lifesaver, Crocodile Dundee, all those symbols of identity in this country over time have all been white men. Yes. They've all been white men. And, you know, and it's, that needs to shift. Yes. And that's where you're shifting it in the stories you tell in your books and like the speech you just did recently with raising awareness of some of the Aboriginal women who have been doing these things that we talk about forever. You also talk about in that book, Am I Black Enough for You? You say that you're often, people often assume that you're a walking, talking encyclopedia on everything Aboriginal, which, which I thought was interesting and could definitely see how that would be the case and that you're often invited to speak on things that you're maybe not necessarily an expert on. Uh, all the time. But from the 90s when I was at uni, I'd be saying, oh, can you come and give this lecture on Aboriginal feminism? I said, well, my area is actually literature. Oh, yes, but you're a woman. I said, well, there are experts in the field and and, and not to go into it, in, into this um uh, on your podcast, but we saw a classic example last week on Sunrise where we had people with no experience in the field of, you know, community organisations, community health, working with Aboriginal young people, whether it's sexual assault or child welfare, having a conversation, a very serious conversation, a very damaging conversation that would impact um, Aboriginal people immediately. So it still happens today. I've been invited to speak on housing panels and so forth. And I'm like, well, that's not my area of expertise. Oh, yes, but you live in a house. I mean, that's as basic as it gets because political correctness has just gone, oh, we just need to have a black fella or a woman or, you know, a lesbian or whatever. And so people are still in the in the case of ticking boxes. And um, I've just become very good at saying that's not my area of expertise, but let me recommend somebody for you. And I think um, it is a huge pressure and I get it every day, every single day, um, particularly when you have, you know, I have an opinion obviously, but it doesn't mean my opinion is always correct and I much prefer to defer to somebody who has knowledge in that space. But it's, it's people, it's sort of like, oh, oh, well, you're Aboriginal, you'll know this. Well, no, I don't know, you don't know, you, you don't know the hit. I'll say, like, tell me about the gold rushes. In Hill End, and people might know that. Well, how am I supposed? To, you don't know the last two hundred years of history. Why would I know forty thousand? So okay. we expect you to. We have different expectations, expectations on others than what we have on ourselves. Absolutely, if you place the same expectations on yourselves mm. as you place on us, you would pick most white fellows who just keep their mouth shut. Mm. 
because it's, it's a lot to expect. And I think Aboriginal people are incredibly generous and giving because we want to live in peace. We want to live in a respectful, unified um, and I say this as a, as a generalisation, obviously, but speaking for the people within my own circle, we, we, we want good things to happen in our communities. We want to work together um, and we are often the ones that make the trade-off and bite our tongues because we know we're looking at the end result. We're looking at the gain at the end and that is, you know, whether it's funding or whether it's getting people on board, um, but you know, we, when it comes to reconciliation in this country, the heavy lifting is meant to be done by non-Indigenous people, but I can tell you it's largely done by us. Yes, yeah, yes. And speaking to your, to your expert area in literature, <laughs> when I was doing some research myself and stumbled across some information in the US on We Need Diverse Books on that campaign and movement over there. And I was looking at some of the statistics for the number of books that are published by authors of colour. But then when I was trying to do some research in the Australian context, I couldn't find a lot of information and found myself just making assumptions based on when I walk into a bookstore and try to find books authored by Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander peoples or people of colour in Australia and kids' books, for example, because I've been on a mission to try and have my four-year-old's bookshelf not just be full of books of kids and families that look like his. And when I go into those bookstores, usually there's just a tiny little section it's easier when I shop online because I can look exactly for what I'm looking for. But I'm curious, as someone who has done a lot of work in that space, is there some information or can you share with us what the landscape is like here? I can. I'm going to tell your listeners to go straight to um, Black Words, which is um, an online database. It's the only uh, database of its kind in the world. It sits within Auslit, so they can just punch in black words, one word, and basically this research engine is just alive with information about the lives, careers, and the works of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writers and storytellers, and there's over 5,000 published uh, First Nations writers and storytellers in that space. Um, it's, as I mentioned, it's the most comprehensive record of Aboriginal uh, and Torres Strait Islander writers. I think there's literary trails, by, there's a children's trail, you'll get information about a whole lot of books, there's a calendar of events. There's so much information there that is available um, to the public. That's, there's also a subscription level to that as well if you want more detailed information. But definitely go straight to Black Words, and I've worked on that in a, in a paid and a voluntary capacity for over 10 years now. Also check out for kids' books, for your listeners interested in beautifully produced, valuable, meaningful, culturally appropriate um, books, just go to Magabala Books. They do some of the most beautiful books in the country in terms of children's books. There's the Black and Right Project through the State Library of Queensland and Hachette. So if you go to the State Library of Queensland website and just look for Black and Right, you'll find the books that are coming through there. UQP has a Black Australian Writers Series, and that was set up in 1988 as part of um, 
uh, a tribute to David Nippon. It's called the David Nippon Award. So they've got a fantastic series of mainly novels and poetry for your readers that are interested in those genres. And also coming out in April this year, Black Ink um, Press have the anthology Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia, which has over 52 um, stories from in, that I've collated and great privilege as the editor to pull together 52 stories by some emerging but also some well-known Aboriginal people in Australia. So, And that comes with a set of teacher's notes. So they, that'll be out in April. So I think that with just those resources alone will be a great start for all of your listeners. And also I will send you links to my blog and I've done three black book challenges for those of your readers who are interested in setting themselves a challenge where they can uh, have a look at those lists to see how many of the books they've read and how many they might get up to. So there's 99 on each of those lists and your readers can add one of their own favourite books to each of those lists as well. Fantastic. Thank you. I'll put all of this in the show notes so people can easily find them as well. I've been on a challenge myself at the moment with my social justice mentor in the States. She said, go six months reading books written by people of colour only and just see after a lifetime of reading books mostly by white people, see what that brings up for you. Um, So I've been deliberately choosing books from Australia here with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander authors and it's been great. That's how I started reading your books. They were first on my list. Um, yeah, so this is going to keep us all reading for a little while. And also I was just thinking, just back to black books, because you're based in Yapoon, yeah. in black words you can actually do a search for books written by people in Yapoon. So the traditional owners here are the younger and terrible people. So I could go into black words and do a search for books created by a turbul or, or created by or have content including or stories about. So your listeners can go and search for materials from where they live mm. or about, which is also a fantastic thing. Here's some homework for you. Yes, thank you. Right as soon as I hang up, thank you. Okay. Yay. And that's the point of this podcast too. I really want people to hopefully learn and absorb but also actually take action afterwards so if if we including me I always do this afterwards can write down one to three at least things to do after listening that's a great start and I find that I usually end up with a a list much longer than that myself I think it's a lot Mm. my goal when I'm doing public speaking is that every person in the room walks and then that's also with working in classrooms with kids, that they just walk out having learned one thing. If people go home and they remember one thing, then I'm, I go, that's enough, yes. one thing. But yes. three, that's, that's impressive. Oh, well, <laughs> yes, that's the least we yeah. can do with everything, with everything that's going on in this world. Mm. And I know that you've also experienced, I think I get a bit out of touch and this is something that I know I need to work on because I have an online business and a mom and and I'm a mom and I'm studying. I don't get out much and I get very consumed, I think, 
in my work and my books and my home. And so I don't get out and learn enough about my community. And I know that I don't mix with real people enough anymore, especially when I'm an introvert and I'm shy too. So combining all those factors and I'm at home too much. So when I'm listening to you speaking and how you obviously reach people through books but through speaking as as well but by actually talking to real people and getting out of the house and learning who the aboriginal people of your area are and researching that history more as well looks like an excellent starting point for me and for for others too I think that's right. I mean, we can, you know, localising it, keep it simple, just learn about the country that you're on and I think that's a great start. And, and using literature to do so is a great way if you can. Yes. Yeah. And one last question, I think, as being a life coach, I'm really curious to hear because I know you have a life coach too. So I would love to hear a little bit about that and what inspired you to get a life coach and to have one for so long. Uh, well, I started in 2003 and that was essentially because I just, I had, I was overworked as I am today, um, but overcommitted, but committed to things that I wasn't a hundred percent in, or I didn't want to be in. So I had all these, I had my A pile, my C, B pile, my C pile, and, and it, I had str- really struggled with saying no, which a lot of your listeners probably, um, experience as well. I really struggled with saying no without feeling guilty. And what I really wanted to do was write full time, which is where I am now. So I went to see my life coach and we started off by setting three short-term goals and three long-term goals. And so the long-term goals were to be being a full-time writer, which only took me a few years to get to. Um, but learning the process of um, you know, looking at the challenges each month of of my work, my personal life and so forth and building strategies, creating strategies to reach each one of my goals. And over time, the big goal is that you learn to create these strategies yourself so you no longer need a life coach. So I don't actually see my life coach anymore. Um, there will be times when um, I may need to check in with her and say, right, I need to have a session and talk about this particular aspect of, of work and so forth. And, and people need to understand life coaches are about generally about goal setting and, and professional things, not about being, being your social worker or your psychologist. It's a completely different thing. Um, so, But I know that I wouldn't be where I am today, uh, running my own business and travelling the world and, and doing the things that bring joy to me, even though they are hardcore work challenges. I wouldn't be here today having not had that journey with her and um and I try to acknowledge her literally in all of my books because she has been in the background constantly. Her name's Geraldine Starr from Starmont. And um, and basically, you know, people go to a dietitian for their diet. They go to see a yoga master to help do yoga and de-stress. And we, we, don't, we forget that we need to, if we're running a business or we just need to get things in, get some more structure in our lives, um, then we, it's okay and it's important to find someone whose job it is to know how to do that properly. Yeah, to help us manage all that and go forward and slow down sometimes too. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I know I said final question, but I do have one more. And that's what's next for you and your work and how can we support you? I'm working on a project on happiness, a non-fiction book. So I've just started doing the research and planning that out because I want to look at the way in which um, 
nutrition and health and fitness, geography, that impacts our health and well-being, whether or not Disneyland is the happiest place on earth or is it going home to country. So I'm working uh, on the framework around that at the moment and I've just submitted a new proposal for an historical novel set in Gundagai around the Great Flood. So I'm waiting to hear back about that. My brain is working overtime because I've just enrolled in university and started a Wiradjuri language and nation building course. And so going back to academia after so long is, was quite difficult. It's about a really empowering thing to do. Um, so that's what I'm working on. Plus, I'm managing the Epic Good Foundation, which brings joy to my day every day. Doing, we're working for Kathy Reed and Stuart Giles, and and putting their philanthropy into practice every day is is just a wonderful thing that I can be part of. In terms of support, I think the best thing that your listeners can do if they are readers, is to review works of any books, any any author, not just me, but love you to review me in a positive way um, on Goodreads or Amazon because um, that's where I guess I've had been hit hardest in terms of what happened in recent years with Am I Black Enough For You in my Amazon page being absolutely bombed, which is the terminology for it, by people who hadn't read the book but were listeners of shock jocks and so forth and it's really useful for people who if they enjoy a, a novel or a memoir or poetry if they get on goodreads and they write a few lines or they give it a star and they encourage their other their friends to do that and to and i would really encourage anybody listening to this podcast who is in a book group to actually consider having uh, an Aboriginal author text, uh, whatever genre you choose to do in your book group, have an Aboriginal author as your chosen book. I am someone who's happy to Skype into book groups around the world um, to have a conversation, you know, for 15 or 20 minutes before you go into talking about your book, talking about any one of my books with your group. So I'm throwing that out there and that's the gift that I'm happy to give if anybody's interested. That's so generous of you and an example again of you mixing with real people and getting outside of your your books and your computer. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ben. You, as I knew would be the case, this conversation has my mind and heart racing with ideas of things that I can do. So thank you so much and I'm sure the listeners will be the same and I can't wait to get down to the library because they've been getting in more of your books for me. <laughs> um, and if anyone is listening and they can't source some books at the library, it's always worth asking them. They're quite often quite happy. They have a budget often and they're often quite happy to go and get those books if you can't afford to be buying books all the time. So it's something worth keeping in the back of your mind too if a book isn't listed after you've been looking through the list and searching that is absolutely correct. Can I just add to that, Naomi? Yeah. Because somebody tweeted the other day saying, asking about my books and audiobooks and so forth, and you know, came up in that in that tweeting, in that Twitter thread, that absolutely just um, ask your li library to, to 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 get in whatever book you're looking for. And um, what I'll do is what some people have told me they've done with my 
the book challenge list, they've taken the list as librarians and then they've used those lists as ways to build up their own collections. So create your own list, take it into the library and say these are the books that I think would be useful on the shelf. And, again, I'm not just talking about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander author books. I just mean books that you think your local library would benefit from having in or books you're interested in. And as you say, you don't have to buy books. You can just use your library. That's why it's there. Yes. And the more you use it, the more they the more they are um, they can fight for funds to actually get more books. So absolutely, use your local library. Yeah, exactly. And if we're doing what you just suggested and looking for local authors as well, they're going to want to stock those people if they haven't absolutely. already. Absolutely. Mm. So thank you, thank you for sharing all of that and for all the ideas and for the labour that you put in to to help create change and to educate people like me and and others and bring us along i i don't have the words to articulate how much that means to me and i'm sure other listeners thank you for listening to the dream for others podcast for episode notes further inspiration and access to my award-nominated free resources please visit naomiarnold.com And if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate if you would please subscribe, leave a review in iTunes or share it wide and far. If you want to more deeply connect with other folk who are dreaming for others, please head on over to my website, visit the podcast page and click on the link to our Dream for Others Ambassadors community. For as little as $1 per month, this community is helping me fund this podcast so I can continue to bring the free episodes to the public, featuring inspiring folk who are making a difference. In return, we have a private Facebook group, quarterly calls, free gifts, bonuses and resources, and are uniting as a small community to support each other in our dream for others. We would love if you would join us. In the meantime, let's continue to dream for others and I'll talk to you soon.